Hi, we're fans of The Forge. I'm here with Peter Burt at Dragon's Breath Forge in Wolcott, Connecticut. So we're going to talk about your two episodes of Forge and Fire yep. and your episode of Night or Death. Yes, okay. So you're very involved in all of this. I try to be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, only as much as they allow, though. So you were in season one and you had the Crusader Sword. Yes. Yep. And with that first round, you had a block of W2 to make a blade of your choice. And it had to have a hamon. It did. How'd you feel about that? Uh, I, for the most part, felt pretty good about that. Um, I've done, I had done hamons in the past. Uh, I was familiar with W2. Um, working down from that uh, large bar was not the most convenient, but it wasn't terrible. Um, you know, they've got, they have the press, they have, uh, well, at that point, they had the, uh, the 25 pound little giant, which they had not yet bolted to the floor. So we all stopped using it almost immediately because mm-hmm. as soon as you used it, it started rattling back and forth. So it was, it was dangerous. Um, but it, it wasn't uh, too big a concern starting out. My, the only thing that, my only question that I had for them was which way the block had been oriented in the plate that it was cut out of. Because steel, when it's rolled out into a plate, has a grain it's very directional and you really want to forge out uh you know working with the flow of the material and they did not know so uh, it was like a minor question mark in my mind oh well you know am i forging this out the right direction but after i'd forged out you know all the way into the knife um i i'd moved the material enough that it should have mostly reoriented so Um, so round one went pretty smooth with the judging. Jay said he liked the design and it had a good kimono. Um, Doug commented that the tang was really small. It was very sexy, but there's issues with the tang. Yes, which I wasn't, I didn't understand <laughs> that because it, it was actually a crazy robust kimono, but, or a crazy robust tang. Um, and, uh, you know, for doing a hidden tang knife, it was, it was plenty strong i think sometimes they uh they want to make sure they cover their bases so mm. later on if, if there had been a failure in the tang they could say see yeah we totally we we called that earlier on yeah. um you know it's foreshadowing which I, I i didn't really care i knew it was fine and also you know they hadn't looked at my drawing carefully because in my drawing i believe i showed the way i was going to uh, roll, you know, split the tang and roll out the ends to fix the pommel plate on. Mm. Uh, so apparently they didn't look at that because they would have realized why it was the shape it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so for round two, you had to add a handle and you used brass for the guard and you burned the handle on. Was that before they started freaking out for the burn on method? Um, you know, I'm not, I, I'm really not sure. It would, the, the episode I was on, was uh, actually the very first one to film. So, you know, maybe it was a follow-up episode that things started going badly with that. Uh, The main thing about burning on a handle is you actually have to be closely fitted Mm. before you do the burn-in. It really should be for just the, uh, you know, fitting up the last little bit. Um, And, you know... Sometimes folks try to use it as a shortcut, and it's not a not a major shortcut. It's a shortcut to good fit at the end. It can't be a shortcut, uh, you know. Like I just drilled a you know quarter inch hole, and now I'm going to put a 
you know, half-inch tang through that, mm -hmm. it won't work. Uh, you know, you're just making charcoal inside your handle. Mm -hmm. um, so for the testing, overall, the chop test on a log performed well, no damage on the blade. Mm -hmm. um, and the handle's comfortable. And then the tomato slice sharpness was very good. Yeah. Hey. So you moved on to round three and made the Crusader Sword, where you used Jelly Roll Damascus. And they didn't really show days three or four for that. No, I I, I noticed that. They kind of skipped. I think that um, they, they probably skipped because at that point in the process, uh, Dave Roeder, his side of the story was a little bit more dramatic. You know, the poor guys who came and filmed me, it was like the most boring thing ever. They got to watch the... <laughs> You know, the first two days, which were very dramatic of, you know, first I was forging the Damascus and then forging out the sword and would I get it long enough, which that, that was close. Um, you know, I, I really had to work to get the last like half inch of length mm -hmm. to meet the parameter. Um, but yeah, most like most of day four, I think, was hand sanding the blade because I made it out of Damascus. I wanted it to be a really mm -hmm. nice polish. So I'm just there back and forth, hand sanding the blade. And the the guys on the crew were like, how long is this going to take? I was like, well, you know, three or four hours probably. Like, okay, we're going to, like, leave. <laughs> we're going to set up this camera, and it's going to be doing stop motion of you because... If this is what it's going to look like, I'm like, yeah, that's what it's going to look like for quite a while. You know, this, this is how sword making goes. It's it's a lot of repetitive stuff. So, um, so yeah, I think they kind of skipped over that because it was not very dramatic. Mm. You know, at that point, I had the blade heat treated. There wasn't any major risk of something going wrong. Not, you know incremental progress is uh, not the sexiest thing on television. Look, folks, he's, he's <laughs> almost to 400 grit polish on this. It'll be only another hour and a half of, you know, 220 grit, and he'll be there. So you finished, and you came back for testing. Um, the horseback strength test held up but didn't cut through the cloth armor. Um, the kill test, it will kill. And the strength test was a cow femur chop. Oh, yeah. How'd, how'd you feel about that one? <laughs> I, I didn't like that one at all. And actually, the, the, the horseback thing, I was really excited at first. I thought that was going to be really cool. Um, and, but more than anything else, I was really nervous for the horse. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if it didn't cut, it was a good chance it would ricochet off, you know, bounce back. Yep. In which case, he's totally going to stab the horse. Um, and they had apparently had the exact same thought. So uh, there's actually tape on the blades. Oh. So, and they didn't go into this. You know, they made a big deal about how the swords didn't cut, but the swords were never meant to cut. They had taped the edges for the safety of the horse. Mm -hmm. And so it really was just a test of could your sword take that abuse? And I, I really appreciate that in later seasons, they've made a big, big point of explaining what each test is testing. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what means that you've done well in that test. So I feel like, uh, you know, that horseback test in particular, it wasn't, I think for most people it wasn't clear, neither sword cut anything. Mm -hmm. You know, really actually cutting through cloth armor is surprisingly hard with a straight sword. Um, so really what they were testing, and they, you know, they checked afterwards, whether everything stayed tight, did any, you know, did the parts loosen up? 
Um, but that's what they were testing, not whether it would cut. Which is why then, right after that, they stripped down the dummy, uh, and as it was, you know, take the tape off the blades and, you know, kill the poor dummy. Uh, <laughs> you know, which that was fun. That was great to watch. It, it was also the, uh, I know for, for some parts of the show, they use sound effects. Mm -hmm. But when you hear Doug, like, getting his hand in there and it makes really nasty, squishy noises, <laughs> those are 100% real. It was, I was like, oh, wow, would I actually sound like that inside? <laughs> I hope not. You know, I like to think I'm not quite that squishy. But <laughs> All right, And so that was your first episode. Yes. And then we come back a couple seasons later where you're making the pata. Well, um, I would have. Would have oh. been nice. <laughs> Was the name of the episode? Yeah, yeah. You were Thanks up for against... rubbing salt in that wound. That's <laughs> no, okay. You're up against Travis Wirtz, Shane Carter, and Scott Thomas. Yes. Yep. <clears throat> so we had round one. Was making the canoe Damascus. How did you feel about the canoe Damascus? Uh, it was fine. Uh, so that was, you know, obviously, um, it was not something I'd ever done before. I, I've, up to that point, had never. Uh, Never made canister Damascus with powdered steel. I had done canister Damascus before, uh, so I was basically uh, familiar with the process. Uh, being a person who likes to be prepared and thinking that, uh, you know, Jay Nielsen, because I wasn't sure who the judge was going to be before mm -hmm. getting there. Uh, Jay Nielsen really likes uh, powdered steel uh, canister Damascus, so... I had gone online and watched some videos on how to do powdered steel canister Damascus. Um, and, you know, it was great. Good thing I did because that turned out to be what we had to do. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one thing I wish they had, um, I guess, included more of in the editing was uh, that each of us took a very different uh, tactic towards uh, how we were going to approach it. Um, we were told that we had to remove the jacket. Okay. Um, but uh, Travis and Shane both decided that they were going to grind the jacket off afterwards. They were going to weld it all solid and then grind the jacket off. Um, I wanted to just have, have the interior fall out, which mm -hmm. ended up working out great. It did. Um, but we also all took different tactics in terms of what steel we put in. Um, cause I know Travis, for example, uh, he put in ball bearings, which partly is because they look good, but also because he's a smart guy, he was thinking about grinding off that outer case that the ball bearings would be really obvious because mm -hmm. if you've welded it all solid, there's not going to be any obvious change in the material as you get through the jacket and into the core material. But if you're suddenly getting down into these ball bearings, it's gonna be blatantly obvious. Right. So he did that. Um, I, I went a very different route, which was uh, picking out all materials that I felt were uh, as chemically similar as possible. Okay. So uh, ball bearings are normally 50 to 100. We had uh, 1084 powder that we were using and um, and you can make good Damascus with 52-100 and 10-84, but they actually have very different uh, working characteristics and very different heat treats for the two steels. So it's not really an ideal combination. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you know, I, I feel like maybe I threw in a couple chunks. They had like some 15 and 20 or something there. I feel like, um, but other than that, I stuck with things that I felt were similar to the 1084. So I wasn't going to get as interesting a pattern, but I was wanted to make sure that the heat treating was as even as possible. Makes sense. Um, so you got to round two where you have to attach the handle and make a guard from cast bronze using foundry. Yes. So is that all another new thing or were you familiar with casting bronze? Um, you know, I, it, I'm going to go with semi-familiar. Um, I had, in fact, you know, we did uh, what's called lost foam casting where you carve out a foam and then pack it in sand. Um, and I had actually, I, I had done that once because I was just curious, because I'd seen it online somewhere, and I was like, oh, I'm going to try that out. Uh, and quickly realized that it's like the worst way to cast anything ever, because foam is impossible to carve. Okay. You know? <laughs> when, when you normally, what you do is rather than lost foam, you do lost wax casting. And lost wax, uh, the wax, you can carve the most amazing detail into it. Um, foam... You can't carve any deal, detail into it, uh, especially when you're on TV and you're nervous and, you know, hard, hard to, uh, uh, you know, be careful with things at that point. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was definitely a, a good challenge, I think. Um, you know, I've, I think that I was a little surprised they didn't uh, really call out Travis on the fact that he didn't actually cast his guard. Uh, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, a lot of what the show is about is how you react to things not going well. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, I think he, he took the best route at that point, which was rather than trying to do it again, he kind of gathered up, you know, that the plate that had cast on the floor from a puddle of bronze and went with that. So, you know, I, I think that was great. Uh, great thinking on his part, because mm-hmm. at that point, if you had to try again, that was that would have taken a very long time. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was uh, it, it was fun having that kind of challenge, just because I, I really I like the technical challenges rather than the more gimmicky challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, cut apart this cannon doesn't appeal to me. Having to cast something in bronze that's you know a much more technical challenge mm-hmm. I think is it's more interesting. So then with the testing um, for the strength test, hammer into steel plates. Jason said it was a robust blade, and he didn't think any damage would have happened if it was a quarter inch steel plate. That's what I was expecting. In in uh, uh, in <laughs> welding and metalwork, plate designates uh, something thicker than eighth inch. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly how thick the material was they had, but it was very thin. Mm-hmm. I, and it's actually been a serious source of annoyance oh, for no. me ever since, <laughs> as they've had all these other episodes where they do hammer a knife into something, and it's always something more robust than what they hammered our knives into. Mm-hmm. And they hammer it in with a hammer, not a dead blow hammer, which is... It was the most softball test possible where it sounded like it was going to be this really tough test. So I, I, I really overbuilt the knife. Um, it was definitely, it was, it was a tank of a knife. 
Um, so, you know, I think maybe Doug had mentioned that it was quite heavy. And I was like, well, yeah, you're going to be hammering it into a steel <laughs> plate. It should be heavy. Uh, so when we walked out and saw this, you know, piece of fairly thin sheet metal tacked down over some wood squares, I was just like, I'm done. Because I knew that what I'd made was not appropriate to the actual test. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that, that's the tough part uh, as a contestant on the show. They tell you what the test will be, but they don't tell you specifically what the test will be. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if they had showed us ahead of time, yeah, it's going to be this, you know, 18-gauge steel, I would have made a different knife. Right. But they want everybody to think about it in a different way and approach it from a different angle because... You know, you have this somewhat uh, ambiguous uh, test that you're planning for. But like, yeah, in my first episode, we were told, you know, there will be a wood chop. And I think they said something like a unique sharpness test. Or, you know, it was, it was kind of odd wording. And we're all like, what? You know? But we're, you know, we all kind of assumed it would be um, something along the lines of the testing that the ABS does for uh, the journeyman smith knife where you chop through a two by four and then need to be able to uh still cut a free hanging rope so we're like mm -hmm. oh that you know that sounds sounds like what they just described and of course no it's it's a cherry log mm -hmm. that they're chopping into you know it's a half log and they've cut it in half so you can chop into it better but it uh you know the actual challenge or actual test is often different than what you imagine it to be. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they like that part yeah. because, you know, they get to <laughs> the send you off down whatever little <laughs> rabbit hole each person chooses. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, because I'd overbuilt the knife, it did not do quite as well uh, against the, what, the beef ribs or whatever it was they mm -hmm. had. Uh, yep, the rack of ribs. The rack of ribs, which Cut. I kicked myself all the way home about that. I was like, I should have hollow ground that knife. <laughs> should have hollow ground that knife. And I thought about it. It, it. Probably the footage isn't there, but I went back and forth between a flat grind and a hollow grind about five times. Oh, wow. As I was standing there, you know, I'm grinding and I'll be starting a hollow grind and thinking, yeah, this is the way to go. And then I'd think, they never told us which way they're going to hammer it into the plate. And I'd asked them. Mm -hmm. I was like, so are you going to hammer it in vertically or edgewise? Oh, well, you know. I guess you'll find out. And I'm thinking, oh, well. It kind of matters. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, boy, if, if, they, if it is edgewise, I don't think it is, but if it is edgewise, then now it doesn't want to be hollow grind. So, you know, so then I'd go back to what I was doing. And then a few minutes later, I think, boy, that's, this is pretty heavy for cutting meat. Mm. Yeah, but that steel plate, oh, you know, <laughs> back and forth. And they, you know. Obviously, I wasn't saying anything, so they probably had no idea. But that's exactly <laughs> the conversation going in my head, you know, was steel plate, cut meat, steel plate, cut meat. And they seemed like they were opposite challenges. But then it was such a, you know, it was such a softball mm -hmm. with that one hit with a dead blow hammer into sheet metal that I was very depressed about that. No. <laughs> um, I've gotten over it, though. Don't worry. <laughs> So that was the, the end of your episode then for yep. your second one. Yeah, and, and, and the other reason I was really depressed is when I found out what they were making, a pata. 
mm-hmm. which is an Indian weapon. And one of my specialties is making crucible steel, which is a traditional Indian steel. I was like, son of a bitch. You would have been so great. I was going to make it out of crucible steel anyways. <laughs> that, was, that was my plan. As I was like, okay, if I go back to my shop, I'm going to make, I made Damascus last time. This time I'm going to do crucible steel. It'll be awesome. And I find out that it was a pata. And I was just they probably invited me onto this episode specifically so that I could make Woots on national television, and now I can't do it. What an ass I am. <laughs> so, but you so. reappeared in the franchise in Night I for did. Death. <laughs> yes. And, and so I've had a slow, declining career in the franchise. You know, you have, you have, uh, so first, third... And then, well, actually, I guess probably not declining because I ended up placing <clears throat> just below middle. So third is just below middle, and I placed, what, fifth out of seven okay. uh, on the episode. So, it's, you know, it works out statistically around the same. So, you know, <laughs> I've, I've leveled off. I've plateaued in the lower middle area. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> You made a Chinese Dadao yes. for your run, yep. which you let me hold before, and um, it's like from my knees to my head. It's this large weapon, but really cool. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. <laughs> we could, if you want, we can bring it back out. Oh, just to show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't mind. So um, you had gotten some penalties on Decapitator, but you managed to get through with um, what some would consider one of the more difficult things, the onions, which is great. Yep. The onions are tough. I, I assume so. I, I actually haven't watched any other episodes yeah. after I watched up to where I got eliminated because I was curious how they portrayed me. And then I was like, okay. Oh, I already know who won, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I did, I, I did wait uh, long enough to, because uh, Paige had told me that he almost died. Paige okay. Steinhardt yep. had said that he almost died. And I was like, now I wonder if he's, he was telling the truth about that. And I watched and I was like, oh, yeah. Wow, Paige Steinhardt, 100% almost died. That was, that was legit. Mm. <laughs> and then he was still able to complete the course. So, mm-hmm. once again, good job, me. <laughs> um, but you were stopped by the ratchet straps. I was stopped by the ratchet straps, yes. Yep. User error, uh, which, you know, because I, I actually, I had designed the sword... Uh, the traditional Dadao does not have uh, much of a slicing belly to it. Mm. And I specifically designed the sword with a portion with that nice curved uh, slicing uh, section. And I just didn't use it, oh. you know. <laughs> it, I, it, the, the sword had been cutting so well up to that point that I just didn't, didn't slow down when I got to those and uh, think through how they needed to cut. Mm-hmm. And of course, I went through the first one fine, you know, although probably if I'd looked at it more closely, I would have realized that it didn't actually cut all that well. Mm-hmm. So I might have I might have changed my tactic at that point, but just chopped straight into the next two and stopped dead, mm-hmm. um, which was sad. I, I, I was uh, I was really excited to just keep going. It, it was so much fun going through the course because you just don't have uh, an opportunity like that right. to, to really take a weapon and really put it through its paces. Um, and, you know, I, I will say uh, that I think what I made was, you know, I shouldn't say it was the perfect sword for the course, 
but I think I had done a very good job taking into account all the types of cuts they would have us do. You know, for example, uh, the back edge is sharp, and I sharpened it like an axe for use on the ice. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not, it's very subtle watching it, but I did actually switch. Oh, yeah? As I walk up to the ice block, I switch, and I'm holding the sword the opposite direction to use that back edge. Because, you know, you watch the first season, and a lot of people, you know, destroyed their weapons against yeah. that ice block. So, you know, I've never chopped a big ice block, so I was thinking, oh, wow. That, that must be a terrible, terrible obstacle. And it turns out it's not. Um, you know, it's, if you have the right tool for it, it disappears very quickly. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, went, I think I had essentially completed the cut in two hits, and the third one just sailed through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, again, I had made... Essentially, you know, it had all the parameters for the perfect weapon for the show. Anybody, mm-hmm. anybody going back and watching or trying to decide what they're going to make or make take on that show, something like that. Uh, you know, it is actually surprisingly light. It's only three pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got you know, a little over two feet of cutting edge on one side, about a foot of cutting edge on the other side. So there's a lot of cutting edge in case you do ding it up somewhere. You have a lot of cutting area to work with um but it also is uh with the longer handle you know a two-foot blade is not a very long blade but with the length of the handle it's effectively the same length as a long sword if you want it to be Mm -hmm. or you can (laughs) uh, hold it up short and uh you know have a little bit more finesse not that i did any finesse cutting Mm -hmm. uh, in my uh my run um but you could. And, uh, but at the same time, you can also swing it like an axe where you know, you're holding at the base of the handle and the second hand, you know, your upper hand slides down uh, as you make the swing. And that's really the most powerful blow you can deliver. And so, you know, A, thanks to the Chinese for coming <laughs> up with a great weapon. You know, and my version is not the traditional version, mm-hmm. but... It was certainly, uh, that was the underlying inspiration for it. Uh, yeah, sorry. What do you hey, think was the... I'm talking too much. That's right. That's why we're here. <laughs> what was the most challenging obstacle? Um, well, clearly those ratchet straps. <laughs> uh, quite honestly, uh, I think that the, uh, the decapitator is really tough um, just because a straight across cut is probably the hardest cut to make. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than perhaps like a rising backhand cut, uh, that straight across is really tough. Um, and, uh, and also it's, I think, uh, it's kind of a mean maneuver on their part to have that be the very first thing, mm-hmm. because if you're jittery going in there, that's when you're going to be your most jittery. And that's, that's almost the only finesse cut in the whole thing. You you can be you know you could do say finesse on the uh, the that lumberjack one the timber, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't do but you could <laughs> you know some people do uh, and uh, but to cut you know you know to do the decapitator well you you have to really have great aim and control mm-hmm. um, so 
that was the first time I'd actually really swung that sword in anything. So I thought I did okay, given because <laughs> I finished it and shipped it out the same day. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no time to practice. Um, you make woots quite a bit. Can you explain the benefit of making woots for your blades? Um, so uh, woots is a crucible steel, uh, you know, and what you end up with, uh, it's, you get an ingot, looks kind of like a half an egg or something like that. Or if you had a bowl of steel, what you okay. dump out would be a woots ingot. Um, and, you know, the, the main reason to do it is uh, for, uh, you know, well, main reason to do it is for the cool factor. Uh, partly, though, um, it was a very historically prevalent uh, steel because um, it was Wootz or other variations. You know, some people uh, say that Wootz is the wrong term to use. I use it uh, because it's what most people uh, understand to call it. Um, but crucible steels were manufactured uh, throughout India, Sri Lanka, uh, up through the Caucasus, um, you know, into, I feel like up into Southern Russia, even um, that part I'm not as sure about, but it was, you know, and into the Middle East as well. Iran, uh, Jordan, that area, uh, Syria, a lot of Wootz manufacture or crucible steel manufacture. And this started uh, possibly uh, more than 2000 years ago uh, and, and continued up until uh, the early 1800s. And so from a historical perspective, it's very interesting. And it was arguably uh, the highest quality steel anywhere in the world, um, probably until the, you know, the, the 1700s, early 1700s, at which point uh, Europe started to surpass uh, Partly because of the quality of their steel, but also um, quality of the heat treat mm -hmm. uh, of the steel. Um, but really, uh, all—I shouldn't say all—but the majority of modern steel metallurgy uh, stems from trying to reproduce woods. Oh, okay. uh, our modern steel uh, really started uh, from a guy uh, named Huntsman who was, I believe he was a watchmaker, and he needed very consistent steel. And so he started making crucible steel based on uh, what he saw being made in India and the Middle East, because the advantage of crucible steel is, it, at the time, it was the only, or at the time, outside of China, because China, I believe, they were doing cast iron and then... Mm -hmm decarburizing it, whatever. We can ignore China now. We gave them the Dadao section. They can, they can wait. Um, but the, uh, the crucible steel, the big difference is that uh, all the impurities flowed out because mm -hmm. it was the only fully molten product. So you actually melted it completely. Most impurities, slag, you know, silica oxide, or silica uh, slags and things like that would float out. And then once that's solidified, you have an essentially homogenous material, mm -hmm. whereas all other iron and steel uh, at that, you know, up until uh, the, the 1700s really was made by, uh, in a bloomery furnace <coughs> where you never really get full melt. And that was where all the folding came in. Mm -hmm. 
you would have this uh, you know non-homogeneous mass called a bloom and it was all full of pockets of slag and bits of charcoal and parts of your furnace and so in order to and and the carbon content varied wildly mm-hmm. from one side to the other and so in order to make that a usable material you had to forge it out and fold it and forge it out and fold it to you know just like kneading dough or something like that you are uh you know developing the material you're evening out the the properties and Woots didn't require that mm-hmm. it, it had its own difficulties <laughs> um but it was essentially homogenous right from the beginning so you took a cake of Woots, you forged it out directly into a sword Mm-hmm. There's none of this folding process, none of that. Um, so part of why I enjoy doing it is uh, I really enjoy the study of metallurgy. Um, and it's about as direct a steel making process as you can have. I actually, you know, like I, I just did a Woots melt uh, this past weekend and it was from charcoal and uh, bits and pieces I picked up off the floor of the forge. I walked around, picked up pieces of scrap that I thought looked good, and put them all in a crucible with charcoal. And I put in a couple of other uh, little bits and pieces of uh, known alloy, because you do need some carbide formers in there uh, to improve the patterning and improve the the performance of the steel. Mm. Um, But yeah, you know, put it in the furnace and fired it up, melted down. And, um, you know, it, it, it's remarkable to be able to go from what is essentially, uh, nothing, you know, it's scrap. We are going to throw mm-hmm. it away to recycling. Yeah. It's, re- it's recycling. And, um, you know, and the great part about it is that, uh, the, the steel itself you know, I'm not going to say, oh, it's, you know, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, it's, you know, Woots is better than all other modern steels, because it's not. Um, you know, it is inherently uh, slightly more porous, just, you know, the nature of what it is. It's a it's a wrought product, um, you know, made it a extremely small scale. It's non-industrial. We don't have crazy controls over every parameter of it like they would at a, you know, uh, a steel mill. So, you know, if you really want to make the highest performance sword or knife, you go to a steel mill, you know, Mm -hmm. you get, you get the the best quality modern steel. Um, but in normal use, uh, Woots will, you know, crucible steels should perform as well as pretty much anything else out there. Uh, like I said, in normal use, most of us never use uh, a knife in a way that we're really going to experience the the utmost levels of its performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually I was just talking to somebody about this earlier that it's kind of like you know driving a Ferrari on Route 84. Yeah, your Ferrari is better. You know, <laughs> it's it's way faster than all these other cars, and um, and the Civic gets there exactly when you do <laughs> so uh most most of the, the like the the modern steels that really get touted as like oh wow this is the best steel ever you're never going to know it you know you, you can know it because you bought it and you say wow you know this is made of s30v or whatever it is um but when it comes down to 
using that knife to carve wood or whatever it is you're going to do with it, you will not know the difference. It's, you, you know, you have to cut that rope hundreds of times before you find the difference in performance between mm-hmm. a really high performance steel and a pretty good steel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's just my, <laughs> my complaint about uh, performance steels. But any case. Um, you've recently made a macraca. Did I, did. I say that? Yeah, I've got okay. that here, actually. You guys <laughs> um, can check it out. Just something you wanted to work on? or? Uh, no, I actually, I have a customer for it. Um, and he actually uh, I saw it on Deadliest Warrior or something like that. It's, it's showed up on a couple different uh, shows. And I think more than anything else, uh, because it looks really vicious. Um, you know, and they are. They're, they're a pretty nasty weapon. Um, but yeah, this guy wanted one, so you know, I thought it looked like a fun project, and it, it was. Um, but the uh, like the version that they had on uh, Deadliest Warrior, at least I didn't watch the show, but based on uh, the pictures he sent me, was a weirdly small version. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was actually uh, it seemed like what they had was more the size of a uh, like a sickle. Uh, you know that you could well. I don't know if you can buy sickles anymore. Used to, when, I, when I lived up in Maine, I bought a sickle. So, um, but the uh, I looked up the historical versions, and they're they're quite a bit larger. Uh, you know, they were more the size of you know a standard sword, but with this odd you know forward curve to them. Um, and it's you know from what I was reading, it sounded like uh, it was for getting around shields. Uh, many of the uh, African cultures and warfare, they, you know, intelligently carried really big shields. You mm-hmm. know, if I was getting in a fight, I'd want a big shield. Um, so then they came up with all these ways to get around them. So they have a lot of odd looking weapons to mm-hmm. get around these very large shields, uh, which I think that in Europe, um, they never really developed that way. I'm not sure why, because there are a few few different instances of, uh, you know, countries or cultures and societies that did, for a period of time, carry very large shields. Um, and obviously somebody figured out a good way around it. Mm. Or they just said, hey, why don't we put some guys on horseback and they'll ride around you in circles while you stumble with your giant shield and, mm. you know, they'll poke you full of arrows, you know, so... On that note, that was my last question. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there we go. Poked full of arrows is how we end. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to talk about? <laughs> um, no. I don't, I, okay. Yeah, the, you know, the peanut butter kicked in. I had, <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, if, if folks are interested in learning more about what we do here at the shop um, and some of the techniques we use, get some of the more technical information, um, we do have a Dragon's Breath Forge uh, Patreon uh, account. Oh, cool. Um, so we're doing videos for that. Uh, try to get at least one up every week. Uh, just covering different techniques, some of them basic, some of them, you know, are me standing in front of a board getting really technical on metallurgy, which, you know, so something for everybody. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you should go check that out. We have uh, some free videos there so you can get kind of a taste of what it's like and mm. after that we we charge heavily it's it's five dollars so okay. you know <laughs> it's a very reasonable amount um and in the future uh there will be actually some more exclusive 
offers that we make uh, for for folks who who join uh, the Patreon account. Uh, but for now, it's just knowledge and getting to watch us be crazy. So that's, well, we've enjoyed our day here with you guys. Yeah. So that's yeah, well, exactly. in and of itself yeah, is enjoyable. <laughs> we're, we're a fun loving bunch here, yeah. you know, as much as you can be without <laughs> burning the place down. Yeah. So. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And this has been us at Dragon's Breath Forge, closing out our day. Like us in all the places. Bye Do guys. that, yes. <laughs> Coffee talk. Well, welcome to Behind the Fern, or whatever it is. Between two ferns? Between two ferns. There we are. Yeah, Behind the Fern, that is the other show. Peanuts are neither peas nor nuts. Discuss. Yeah. Okay. You're recording. Oh. (laughs) Oh, well, they got that part. (laughs) So...